0: I'm Mike Gillis. And
1: I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians.
2: excited about is that it feels like Steve Gerber's Defenders. That sort of gonzo crazy anything goes. The Defenders was a strip that Marvel did in the 70s and Gerber was just doing any crazy ass thing that popped in his head. Probably the most famous storyline was The Head Men. Where oh, he,
0: yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Three, uh, Three crazy one-off horror characters from Marvel's horror stories, the sort of the kaiju era that we were talking mm-hmm, about earlier mm-hmm. today. Um, Gerber resurrected each of them and put them in a supervillain group. There was Dr. Arthur Nagin, who did horrible experiments on gorillas, and one night he woke up and the gorillas had put his head on a gorilla body. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he still wore a lab coat, so you know he was educated. Okay.
2: Uh-huh. There was... Uh, Another doctor whose name I forget who had been experimenting on like trying to make himself more attractive to to lose his. I I don't even remember what it was, but he had he had screwed it up so that all his his face melted. And his face looked like a collapsed (laughs) beanbag. And he was the biochemist of the group. Nice. Um, And then there was Chandu the Mystic, who was an old radio character that Stan loved. And so Stan put him in a story in the 50s and they resurrected him. And then there was Ruby Tuesday, who was a woman who had replaced her head with a morphing bioplastic... Um, thing it could be anything, but at rest it was a red sphere and um, and they were the head men.
1: this is uh uh-huh. And uh, this this is from the Marvel uh, bullpen's pot smoking days. I yes, take it right. Absolutely. Yes. Weirdly yes. though, I heard that Steve Gerber was the one guy who wasn't doing drugs. He wasn't.
0: <laughs> he was just really like that. <laughs> wow. He's the creator of Howard the
2: Duck, and
1: uh, which had a cameo appearance in the New Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I didn't. Yeah. That that Howard the Duck has been cinema poison for a long time. It's been radioactive.
0: I, I feel it's kind of one of those things where. A bad adaptation can ruin everything. Because Howard the Duck, the comic strip, uh, really would be something I think people could get into because it was basically just Steve Gerber ranting about the
1: world. Oh, is is the character a substitute for himself? Is yeah, that is, yeah,
0: yeah. He's an insertion where he would encounter things that would normally lead to some epic battle between him and a villain, and the and then it's, you know it's like some villain standing on some log over a waterfall going "Fight me, Howard!" and he'd start to step out there and go you know what, this is stupid, he just walk away. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the headman came from the same, same mind as Howard the Duck. I think he, he also can't co-created Man-Thing, didn't he?
2: Um, he didn't create it, but Gerber was the guy that looked at Man-Thing and said, well, there's no point in trying to outdo Swamp Thing. They're doing horror. I am going to do Kafka-esque absurdist comedy.
3: Hmm. That is hmm.
2: where Howard the Duck came from. Man-Thing's Swamp. According to Gerber, was actually a nexus of realities, and and there was a a little portal where all these characters came stumbling out. One was a a barbarian from a, a sword and sorcery universe. One was Howard the Duck. Uh, nice. Um, I forget the others, but the, he basically just put all these characters together with the nonverbal swamp monster, and they just mayhem and hilarity ensued.
1: Uh, I, th- it sounds terrible on paper. <laughs> I'm I sure, know. I'm, I mean, ma- but I'm it sure worked. it was. I'm sure it, it was actually quite good. I, I, is this is the '70s? The time when they just like they, uh, unlike the golden age where they were writing for for young children or for teenagers or whatever. Is the '70s would clearly their audience was just those kids that had grown up and they were now in their 20s and 30s and who still loved comic books, but. They, they, they needed to get their rocks off and so they had to get even more and more ridiculously absurdly they writing, com- self-referential they were
2: writing for each other mm. oh they were writing for each other they oh. were trying to wow each other and I think also they really wanted to prove to all their parents and peers who had laughed at them that this could be a real thing that this could be art that, that you could do comics with literary aspiration mm. and um, and Part of it was actual literary aspiration. Part of it was still fighting the Adam West fight against Mm. the playground bully.
3: Yeah, right.
2: You know, but it sort of coalesced into this thing where when it was bad, it was excruciatingly, excruciatingly bad, like brother voodoo.
0: Oh, God, (laughs) well. Yeah, there were some. There was they experimented, but what happens when you experiment is that you can fail. Yeah, when you fail, it blows up the lab. (laughs) Yeah,
2: pretty much. But Uh... when they were successful, they were great, and Gerber was the greatest of them. This is my feeling; it's not Mm. necessarily sure, but Gerber was the greatest of them because superheroes and absurdist humor had almost never been done before, and Gerber was brilliant at it.
1: Well, uh, it occurs to me that if you're talking about that that sort of quest to make comics a sort of legit and respected art form was something that and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm only coming at this from not I'm not being not a lifer is is it took sort of the British invasion it took sort of the Alan Moore or the Neil Gaiman to sort of sweep in and uh, give sort of literary credibility to the types of storytelling even though you know some of the stuff that uh, that Alan Moore the character of Swamp Thing is just as ludicrous of an idea as um, you know, the r- ruby red. It's, it's still silly and stupid.
2: Yeah. Um. But
1: it. But it didn't. Well,
2: that's when it, the it was the outside...
1: 80s. Really, I guess, when it really started ramping up, when they had the 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 wherewithal, the freedom to be able to do it. Hell, Hellblazer and whatnot. Well,
2: kind of. What happened in the 80s was that all the 70s journeyman work paid off. Um, and also the business itself changed you weren't competing for rack space on newsstands with harlequin romances or casper or hmm. you know you Archie were able comics. you were able to target market your stuff and you were able to separate the nerds from the rest of the pack and sell directly to them and also in the 80s um, comics discovered something that the rest of publishing found out roughly a century ago, which is that it's possible to go in a bookstore and keep something in print.
3: <laughs> Comics uh.
2: publishers were so indoctrinated with the idea that they're magazines. Right. They're magazines. They're like People or Time. They go out, they have a shelf life. They're done, they're destroyed. Nobody keeps old copies of magazines except crazy fanatics. That was the world of comics. That they mm. that's what they thought they were publishing. It it took the 80s revolution of direct marketing to to specialty retailers and and transforming it from a magazine model to a book model. Mm. Now comics are books. Yeah. Now they have a backlist. Yeah. Now there's collections. It, and... it
1: seems insane that they could have been so short-sighted when they couldn't have been. They couldn't have been ignorant of how obsessive comic book fans were about the secondary market, about tracking down that issue. They were uh, completely ignorant. of it. I, I, I don't. It's well, just... also,
0: you had a, a medium that had been largely aimed at children, and nobody really gave a shit about children as a market. This was a thing that unruly kids are in the back seat. We're on a car trip. How do I make them shut up? And that was as much thought as the money
1: people in that industry gave it. Well, it's it's so interesting now when you so of course I didn't I didn't live in the time that you were. I mean I I, <laughs> yes. I, I came of age it was a long
2: ago. Time when we carved age, our yes, comics yeah, on yes. stone tablets. No, I mean
1: uh, I the first I was just I was going through because for the vigilante episode I went and I bought one of the marvel's giant thick anthology reprints of punisher of the punisher series that started i think in 85 or 86 or 86, something yeah um and one of them i think it's like the fifth or sixth episode um the still the same writer who started it whose name i'm not remembering baron baron yes and but they had a different artist for this one mm-hmm. the the penciler was different on this one and it was a it was just a one-shot episode about the punisher um teaming up with like a Mossad secret agent woman who's sort of like briefly teases of it could be like, Oh my God, like he could find a love interest someday by finding a woman that's as deadly and cunning as he is. And they take down like a, libyan or someone getting plutonium or something and they uh, This is are, this these, big the, set. are these, these the people
0: who did business with doc brown yeah, they probably were
1: <laughs> like you know they they're like the it ends where the libyan guy has a giant lead line basket uh that he's wielding like a boulder and trying to throw it on punisher and stuff and the art is just so was just so incredible i'd never seen i'd never seen a comic book penned that way before and you know this would have been the, the mid-80s mm-hmm. um uh, and that really sort of c- cemented my my view about how how beautiful the images could actually be because you're right before that it would have been if you're young enough it would have been like oh well, you're reading uh you know an archie comics or something your or mine exposure was like the transformers comics which were not great <laughs> i guess <laughs> just m- marketing marketing for hasbro you know um but I, I, what i what i think is actually really impressive is it was clearly by that time um that that they there had been some sophistication, these all these layers of sophistication about how different an artist's, uh, like a writer's voice could be, an artist's voice could be, and it was being still, it was being filtered through Marvel's characters, and they could be quote serious unquote. But I guess you got to expect that with Punisher because he's got to be he's got to well, be super serious.
2: Actually, what happened with the Punisher is kind of an interesting story. I think we might have talked about this a little bit in the Vigilante episode. It was a, the Punisher didn't change; the landscape around him changed. Hmm. The Punisher was created as a villain for Spider-Man. Because Spider-Man is a hero that's plagued with self-doubt, so who's the perfect adversary for him? the The Mac Boland guy who has no doubt whatsoever about his holy war, and the the end always justifies the means. Spider-Man, Peter Parker, is always tormenting himself about God. What if what if this happens? What if I'm wrong? What if you know he's always the burden of being Spider-Man is the engine that drives that strip, and and. The Punisher feels no burden about being the Punisher.
0: He knows what to do with problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, is it the difference dip- the backdrop? Is it, just, is it Reagan's America? The backdrop America? is that you know,
2: and yeah, it's America, but it's also the the comic book writers at Marvel at the time they were all hippy dippy peaceniks. And mm-hmm. you know, and then in the eighties, Mike Barron comes along and says, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" He's the Punisher. This is badass macho action. This is Mac Boland. Let's let's break some shit.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I and- think
0: I, I read some an article somewhere once that it was years before the Punisher was allowed to kill anyone on screen. I mean, partially yeah. it was the comics code. But it was also sort of the, the notion of, should he, we allow this guy to kill criminals? He was
2: the bad guy. It was Stephen Grant gave him a miniseries. Stephen Grant is also the writer that did uh, Two Guns. I don't know if you saw Two Guns. Um, the, uh, he's very hard guy, hard crime fiction guy. And he wrote The Punisher, basically, is Mike Hammer. It's, mm. it's hard crime fiction. He is the, 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 the evil that exists to end other evil. And that was the, the Grant's take on it. And uh, and it really worked and it was hard pulp action and it was apparently what the world was waiting for.
1: Yeah, and that this kinda of buttresses well with since we were just hot off the heels of doing a uh you know, a podcast de la vista baby. It it feels like Punisher of that era is cut from the same the same cast as an Ar- any Arnold, choose an Arnold movie, you know. Yeah. Choose an Arnold movie of that era, a Predator or a Commando. Yeah,
0: there's things that an Arnold action hero would do that you wouldn't bat an eye at, that we act horrified when certain established comic book heroes do it. Mm-hmm. One of them, if Arnold pops up behind a bad guy and snaps his neck, we all cheer. <laughs> yeah. But when Superman does it in a movie, we're horrified. <laughs> and rightfully so. And, and I think that's, you kind of have to do is, you know, Punisher's in that universe but you really kind of either the it's a story about him versus Daredevil and they're arguing about their various philosophies about how you deal with scum <laughs> or you have a story that just pushes all of those people off to the side. Because if the Punisher's the main hero, you don't want to make these other established heroes that you want to tell stories about look like a bunch of moralistic assholes who don't know how to finish the job because <laughs> in Punisher's world, he has to be that guy. And you have to portray the thing he's doing is right when he's the hero. That he is a guy who murders a lot of people and never has a stray bullet go and hit an innocent person. And if you show that working, it makes Daredevil look like a chump the next time that bullseye breaks out of prison again.
3: Hmm.
0: So hmm. it's it's a little bit of a a dance you have to do where they exist in the same world but you kind of have to largely keep them separate
2: the absolute worst Punisher stories ever published are the ones that try to thread that needle and justify his existence Mm. the only way to make it work is to do what Mike says and just ignore all the spandex crap yeah you let the spandex guys in and they all look like wussies. Yeah, I,
1: I think this is once again just sort of reinforcing what I've said to you, Mike, over and over again, which is clearly the way that I enjoy comics the, is when there's the least amount of superheroes in them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's just the, just the, I, the way. I it
0: is. I love me some superheroes. I just don't love shitty superheroes. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the thing. Is like again the the same thing we said about Spider Man. If Punisher and Spider Man meet, it's going to be in a Spider Man story where the Punisher plays a villainous role. But if the Punisher is the main character, keep them away. Just keep them away because it makes them look like shit. It'll make them look awful. But I want to get back to this discussion of the headmen and the defenders because this is a topic that has been in the back of my head. I've wanted to talk about this storyline for the longest time because I've actually just given friends and coworkers the synopsis of this just – it, not, not to amuse them, but to amuse myself by the look of their face as I just keep adding layers to the insanity of I this I haven't thing. even
3: got
2: to the good stuff yet. <laughs> oh, God. Um, that was just the jumping off point. As the Defenders, the Defenders is a group made up of Doctor Strange, the Hulk, um, a character called Valkyrie that's kind of a female Thor type, except she's got a sword, She's actually not a lot different than Valeria in the Conan movie, now mm. that I think about it. She mm.
0: has a uh, flying horse named Aragorn.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, and Coincidence? Uh, no. And Nighthawk, who's, who's kind of a Batman kind of a guy. He was originally created as a Batman analog for mm. an Avengers story. But Gerber made him like a tormented sad millionaire who's acting out in a way to try and salvage his his empty life which you know is a great steve gerber look at what batman might be if you really if you lift the hood on batman and look underneath you see a lot of really nasty stuff and gerber put that front and center with nighthawk Hmm. and the great thing about the way he wrote them This is just my theory. But this is how I this is why I love the defenders so much because it wasn't the the absurdest storylines that he had them in. It was that the Defenders were the superhero equivalent of my nerd posse in high school. (laughs) Doctor Strange was like the cool kid with the great record collection. Everybody hung out at his house because they didn't want to go home. (laughs) Nighthawk was the the tormented kid with the really shitty family that was kind of... You know, given to strange depressions and didn't want to talk about what was going on at home. V- Valkyrie was like the cool tomboy chick that everybody kind of wondered if they were. She was a lesbian, but they were also kind of crushing on her. Mm-hmm. And the Hulk is the big dumb kid with anger management issues that they take pity on. <laughs> and this is how he wrote them. He wrote them as like high school. He wrote them. They were the Breakfast Club nice. of Marvel superheroes. Nice. And and so he took this group of just misfit weirdos who were working the outcast thing way before Chris Claremont had the X-Men milking. Hmm. And the defenders were outcasts, not because they were mutants, but just because they were fucking weird. Yeah, (laughs) They were just too weird to hang with the Avengers. The Avengers were kind of afraid of them. Hmm. Um, So they, they were friends with each other because no one else would have them. And, um, and Gerber took this group of weirdos, and he decided this group of weirdos would handle the weird shit in the Marvel Universe. So he put them up against the headmen, And at the same time the headmen were about to do their evil stuff, um, Nebulon, the celestial man, came back to Earth um, because he had taken pity on humans, and he was going to show them the way. And so he started a religion, mm. and the religion was the cult of Bozo. <laughs> and everybody that that joined the cult had to wear a bozo mask and own up to "I am a bozo, I am a worthless clown." And
1: what the fuck?
2: And and that's the look, right? I, yeah. That's the one that you enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: and I, and... Can, I, I think no. I mean, can you just imagine the the tens of thousands of children's faces when they're reading this and they're just like, "I don't, even, I don't even know how to." I always kind of thought drop def- this into reality. The it Defenders was
0: a good comic for the kid in high school who smoked a lot of pot.
1: Yeah, well, it was.
2: See, that was why I loved it. That was it. Was for me. <laughs>
3: it wasn't for the kids. It was for
2: me. The the you know the the freaky English major who listened to cool records and were angry about AM radio because they were full of posers and you know yeah. <laughs> it was it was the the angry high school kid comic is what it was. Oh, it and was the Defender- brilliant
0: the Defenders would fight all the time too because the Hulk had never had any fucking clue what was going on that there was always this big epic intergalactic transdimensional crisis going on and all the hulk knows is that there's a bunch of monsters yelling at his friends and, <laughs> and he didn't even call them by their their real names a lot of the time he would have nicknames for everyone he'd call like bird nose or sword girl <laughs> or Fishman. i mean they were always names like that and he wouldn't really understand what was going on until some villain crossed a line and hurt one of his friends. and Or he would occasionally have these little moments of clarity, like they were fighting the Sons of the Serpent, which is a costume snake-themed racist organization.
1: Oh, of course.
0: Because um, <laughs> of course they are. And the sons, of, <laughs> so the sons of the Serpent are doing their usual anti-immigrant stuff. Take that, Fox News. They've been doing that shit since the 60s. <laughs> um, they're not making it up just to make fun of you, but if you see yourself in it, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but, <laughs> so the Sons of the Serpent are are messing with people, and in this storyline, uh, the, the Defenders have teamed up with Luke Cage and Son of Satan, Oh, he yes. has a big pentagon uh, pentagram on his chest, nice. and uh, nice. he rides around in the sky by a chariot pulled by flaming horses. <laughs> And there's, there's a, a great
2: th- bit where he's giving Cage a lift and Cage is like holding it and saying, <laughs>
0: sweet Christmas. <laughs> so it's a weird group and uh, the, the Sons of the Serpent are doing their usual racist bullshit. And the Hulk has this moment of clarity. He's like, what? You don't like people that are white? The Hulk is not white. The Hulk is green. You hate Hulk, so Hulk hates you. <laughs> and he starts beating the shit out of racists. <laughs> So it's like this Hulk has this little like Adam West line of logic that leads down to racist bad
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> but
0: the the glorious. the H- headmans story that I always really love the most um, takes place after the team broke up one of their many times they'd break up another crisis would happen they'd have to round everyone up again so the team has just had another fight there'd be people who want to be part of the defenders like Nighthawk and Valkyrie were kind of cool with it dr. Strange kind of tolerated people hanging out in his house (laughs) a Hulk could just wander in and out Um, but anyways uh, Nighthawk's flying off the team had just had a fight and he's just like I really like being part of the Defenders thinking to himself he gets kidnapped on the way out of Doctor Strange's house by the Headmen they take him to a lab (laughs) <laughs> they strap him down, and they cut his brain out and put it in a jar. Mm, mm-hmm. It's not even a
2: jar. It's a dish. It's a dish. A dish. It's, yes. a bowl. it's pretty bowl. It's, it's, okay. The top half is exposed to the air for the whole
0: Lint and all Dude. sorts of stuff getting on that brain. You just brush it off. <laughs> just use one of those canned air things on it, and it'll be fine. And... uh <laughs> and at that point, it does. It basically looks like that dish that the brain guy on MST carries his brain around mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. So he gets kidnapped. They're like, "This is our opportunity, headmen. We're going to infiltrate the Defenders." So they've got this brainless body of Nighthawk, and they go, "Let's take out Shandu the Mystic's brain, put it in Nighthawk's body, sew him back up, push him out the door, and he'll fly back to Defenders headquarters. They'll let him in, and this will be our way to take down the Defenders once and for all." He gets found out right away (laughs) Um, and leads to a mystic battle with Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, of course, kicks his ass because he's the Sorcerer of fucking Supreme. Right. Meanwhile, there's another storyline where the Hulk is jumping through like the New York woods and (laughs) sees a baby deer about to be killed by a hunter. Um, Hulk does not like seeing innocent critters get killed and... I think he bends the guy's gun in half.
2: You missed the best part. Oh. The 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 hunters have just taken down this doe. And they're and they see the little the little deer and they're they're beer drinking stereotypical you know macho asshole hunters they're not just hunters they're asshole hunters let's make that very clear and and they've killed the doe they're about to kill the little fawn when suddenly the hulk bursts out of the woods yelling men killed bambi's mother <laughs>
3: uh.
0: so yeah hulk fucks those guys up carries the deer away under his arm and leaps away And he He ends up at Doctor Strange's house just as this mystic battle has just ended. The magician is smart. He'll know how to fix deer. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the Hulk thinks, like half the time. Shows up, uh, and they're like, "Well, what do we do with this magician now?" Oh, let's trap his soul in this baby deer's body. (laughs) So there's the 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 soul of this angry mystic is in this deer, and they've like tied him to uh, like a chain tied to a stake in, like, the backyard of of the Sorcerer Supreme's house in Manhattan. And he's, like, tied there going, ar, ar, it's he's, like, a pissed-off baby deer. The Hulk doesn't really quite understand that it's not his baby deer. He doesn't know why they won't let him take it out. He thinks it's his friend. But uh, at that point, they're like, well, what do we do now? So we have... Uh, <laughs> um, I forget it was, Jack something or Jack other. Norris. Jack Norris, who is the husband of Valkyrie's body. See, she's a corpse that is possessed by the body of a Norse Valkyrie. Okay. And he <laughs> believes that he can bring back her memories and he he loves her but she doesn't know him because she's basically a, a soul floating around in a corpse. And he wants to reconnect with his wife. So, so Jack
1: he, Norris, the necrophiliac, is yeah. what you're saying, yes?
0: Yeah, he's just like, I yeah. want you to have your memories back. You know, He's
2: actually more like the boyfriend that won't let it go. No. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the other ones just kind of tolerate him as the non-powered guy who just hangs around, who's not wearing a silly costume. And uh, he volunteers to help out because he really wants to impress his not-wife. And so he allows Dr. Strange to put his soul into Nighthawk's body. So let's let's get this straight here. This is Nighthawk's body with Chandu's brain with Jack Norris's soul. It's like a nesting doll of weird. And they're like, okay, sew so him back up. By the way, in the Marvel Universe, people recover from open brain surgery sure, really fast. Sure
1: they do. So
0: <laughs> they send him back out there. Meanwhile, there's this one-off story where it's from the perspective of Nighthawk's brain in the dish. And, of course, it's a 70s, so it's super psychedelic. And, again, this is that reminder that Steve Gerber is the one guy who's not doing drugs. Yet he seems like he has the best drugs. <laughs> so I, I forget a lot of the other beats of the stories, but they eventually get this whole thing sorted out. Everyone gets the right soul-brain-body combo.
1: Okay, nice.
0: Um, Chandu wakes up back in his body which has been just laying on a table this whole time, and he forgot the fact that his, his best friends are, one, mad scientists, and two, evil. They got bored, and they turned him into a fucking monster. This is like human centipede-type body horror. He wakes up, his arms have been turned into eels. Of course. Yes. Like He's,
2: lampreys, like yeah. the teeth.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's dead. He's got bird legs. He's got a unicorn horn and a really long, almost prehensile forked tongue, and <laughs> bird wings. And he is he is understandably upset about this and goes on a fucking rampage and the defenders beat him up again. <laughs> I don't know what happened between now and then, but in the comics right now, he's just a floating head that tends bar. <laughs> so he got rid of the rest of the body stuff. And then, uh, like his friends, he's like, What did you do to me? And they're like, What? We're evil. We were born.
1: It, it, it seems like he's the Frank Grimes of Marvel Comics. You know, he's always, it's always <laughs> turn up luck- unlucky for him, you it's, know?
0: It's weird when you can make somebody feel that bad for a villain. <laughs> we kind of want him to defeat the Defender so he can have fucking something. Because <laughs> that's just... But- what I love about this story is there's another one that is completely unconnected, and I don't know if I ever saw the end of it, where there's these little one-page segments where a Santa Claus-style elf knocks on people's doors, they answer, and he shoots them with a handgun.
2: <laughs> there was just, it was just something that Gerber was throwing in. He was going to get back to it. He had no idea what it was going to be. <laughs> And the the thing that was brilliant about it was that the readers were like, no, never explain. (laughs) Eventually, like a decade later, some idiot Marvel writer decided that he was going to explain the elf with a gun, and it was the most tone-deaf thing I think anybody at Marvel ever published.
0: Oh, I was just hoping that it was like one of Santa's helpers was sick of the scum and the bullshit <laughs> and the ineffectiveness of the cops and he went all Bernie gets on people. I just want it to be
1: exactly what it is on the surface. Leprechaun vigilante.
0: <laughs> With his little forked beard. And he's, he's just,
1: you- just got to be in repose on a a bent trash can just drinking little airline bottles of vodka and whiskey really
2: you should google it because you can google it and see all four of the pages there were only like four of them and uh, they were just they were little little intermission like just a page that would just show up unrelated to anything in that particular issue of The Defenders.
0: I'm just going to assume the elf killed everyone he needed to kill before The <laughs> Defenders became aware of it. Mission accomplished. He was No, he's
1: he was a spree killer, not a serial killer. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So it's, it was over. It was over. He got it out of his system. Yeah. <laughs> temporary insanity. Oh. No.
0: Speaking of, of kind of temporary insanity, have you guys heard of a comic book series called Huck? No. It's... Uh, written it's well first I want to say because uh, what it's written by is something I want to lead into but um, it's drawn by uh, Raphael Albuquerque who did a run on the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle character also does a lot of stuff with um, American Vampire for Vertigo which is a really good series hmm. mm-hmm. think of that like coming up from Vertigo about vampires it seems like there's two things that I wouldn't get excited about Shh. from a modern thing sure but I love it it's a great series mm-hmm. anyways Raphael Albuquerque's art is amazing but Huck is written by Mark Millar. I don't know if we've ever talked about Mark Millar so. on the show. He's Not guy, to me. Uh, he wrote Kick-Ass. Uh, mm. He wrote the comic that became The Kingsman. He did uh, one that we really do enjoy, Superman Red Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a really good writer that has a lot of bad habits. I would say that he's somebody. A Coke who... habit. He's got a Coke habit, right? I don't think he has a Coke habit. I yeah. think he. it's kind of like when you know somebody, like, the only analogy I can come to is back to high school again.
2: Well, the, the, honestly, a lot of comics writers seem to have that arrested adolescent sensibility. That's who they're playing to. And, and Millar always seems like the kid that's daring you to get mad.
0: Yeah, he's hmm. like trolling you. And the weird thing is, he's a really good writer, and when he has these moments that have these genuinely really well-crafted characters, great moments, uh, segments that actually have real emotional resonance and vulnerability in them, but he's ashamed of those moments. Like he, He's like the really smart kid who holds himself back by his desperate need to impress his dirtbag friends.
1: Hmm. And, in this analogy, who are the dirtbag friends? The um, comic, comic book reading audience as the, as a whole?
0: The worst denizens of message boards.
1: Oh, oh Jesus.
0: Because his stuff... I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've, yeah. you've read Kick-Ass. The movie Kick-Ass is better than the comic Kick-Ass. Because hmm. the movie Kick-Ass is made by people who are probably a bit more adult. The movie it, Kick-Ass
2: actually has more heart in its middle third than Mark Millar had demonstrated in the last decade of his comic book
0: work. Yeah, mm. the comic book stuff is a lot more mean-spirited. There's little moments where it's almost like it wants to say something, but oh, fuck it, I'm going to throw away the message and just double down on violence is cool. Or this is shocking for shock's sake. Um, and you know that he's better than that because you've seen him be better than that. Where the movie actually has these moments where like, Kick-Ass gets in the first viral video about him him fighting all those guys to protect that mugging victim. You don't know why they're trying to beat this guy up or kill him. But there's a bit where the criminals say something to him like, are you really going to die for this piece of shit? You don't even know who he is. And he says something like, yes, I'm willing to die for him. So fucking bring it on. Hmm. And it's this moment of genuine sincerity, like altruism, kind of peeking through a really cynical movie of, no, I'm willing to die for this other human being. And there's this point where it's just kind of a war of attrition. They're beating the shit out of him. He's beating the shit out of them and they just give up and run away. And the guy on the ground is just thanking him. And that's a moment that the comic never really has, where it's a moment of genuine like emotional, like, oh my God, you in the end, even though you went out there and did this thing for the stupidest of reasons, you just helped another human being who was afraid they were going to die. And that's a moment that, that had to be injected by other creators onto his work. And I'd say Kingsman is probably like that too. <laughs> but here's the thing with Huck. Huck feels like... I I don't know if it's a come to Jesus moment or if it's a a crisis in faith of the stuff that he normally does. But um, Mark Millar is open about this and it says that Huck is the result of him having watched the movie Man of Steel. And it was that moment where Superman snaps Zod's neck and he goes, holy shit, what have I been a part of? Hmm. And how horrified he was at the idea of Superman, this character who should be like the ultimate decent human being that you're going to get. That's what I love about Superman is he's a character who gets under that crusty cynical shell that you build around yourself and makes you feel like you're six years old again. When that guy snaps somebody's neck, Mark Millar starts having this sort of crisis of conscience where he's going, what have I done in comic books that has helped contribute to the path that led us here? And he decided to make a comic to try to make amends for it. Wow. Hmm. Good for him. It's really fucking good, too. So, Huck is a Superman story about a guy named Huck, who is a super strong, super fast guy living in a small Vermont town. It's essentially, what if Superman never left Smallville, everyone in town knew he had powers, but everyone kept it a secret because they want to protect him from Hmm. all the attention. He's not slow, but he's kind of guileless, and he's very Hmm. sweet, and he's decent, and his... Whole philosophy is that he's going to do one good thing every day, and sometimes mm. that means I'm going to mow everyone's lawns in town, or I'm going to take out everyone's garbage. Or there's a lady who lost her locket last week. I'm going to find it for. Her. One of his superpowers is that he can just naturally find something, if you describe it to him, give him a name, or show him a picture, that he can just naturally find it, and he finds. Uh, this locket lost at the bottom of a lake for somebody and just leaves it on their doorstep. Everyone in town knows that he's there and they love him for it. He just pumps gas for a living. And everybody, when a new person moves into town, takes them aside and goes, listen, this is the thing about Huck. He doesn't need this kind of attention. He's a sweet guy who just wants to help people. We all love him, so we're going to protect him from this kind of media scrutiny that he would definitely get. And the story is about the new person in town who leaks it to the press. Hmm. And the new Mm. attention that this guy gets. And there is a backstory to who he is and how he has his powers. There's kind of a dark conspiracy and stuff like that. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't darken Huck. That Huck is this incredibly decent, cool guy who doesn't want to see the bad part of anyone he's the guy that when the governor does invite him to some charity ball that's really just there that hey i want to be photographed next to this really popular guy who is bothered by the facts that he hears cats and at the alley behind his um his hotel room and doesn't like the idea of them going hungry so he runs up the the bill that the 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 budget they give him and buys a bunch of fish and chicken dinners for the cats in the alley. (laughs) And then when he sees there's homeless people back there too, gives them not only the same amount of food, but also lets them stay in his room.
1: Hmm. Wow.
0: And he's just like such a good fucking guy. And it's, it's so, it's the stuff that I knew Mark Millar could do, but it's almost like it took a shitty movie to make it happen.
1: So this connection between that, the next snap moment And the creation of Huck is this something that he's talked about? Is this is that do you know that's his impetus, or are you just assume? Are you just putting together the facts of has he written that that's the case? Yes, he has. Oh, okay, all right.
0: That he's outright said that that was the part where he actually goes, "Oh man, what have I done?"
2: It's also worth noting that the very few times that Mark Millar isn't joyously being the troll kid in the room was when he writes Superman. Hmm. It's not just Red Sun. He also wrote the the licensed tie in comic for the the animated Superman series. Oh, really? Um, Superman Adventures, and they were just straight up fun, good Superman stories. I've, if if somebody had taken the name off and said Mark Lalar wrote that, I would have assumed that they were having me on. Hmm. You yeah. know, he's got like a lot of these guys. Like Mike said, they have a soft spot for Superman.
1: I I've, I kind of have a feeling that if you pulled most comic book writers a lot of them probably do i mean for reasons that we talked about on our superman episode he's kind of he's kind of the quintessential superhero so if you're going to be someone who writes for comic books you have to be aware of him. um but i think that's i think that's probably what's great and what's foundational about what superman is is he's the he's the peak he's the pinnacle he's the exemplar of what you of what you want to have in a personification of good um but I mean, it's I I think that the problem is is it's hard to walk that line of um, telling the same story over and over again, and or and adapting it to new mediums or to new storylines. Um, clearly, something Zack Snyder can't do. Uh, you know, to and and to keep the the good left in that Superman. Um, but yeah, I, I, is is there people who don't like Superman? I think there are there, are, people, are. are there people are there are there comic book writers who just don't like Superman.
0: Oh, lots yeah. of them. Okay, lots of them. I wonder about Frank Miller sometimes. At least Frank, Frank Miller. Miller
1: clearly
2: he claims to like Superman. He clearly hates him. Mm-hmm. The I mean I'm doing that thing that I despise where I'm psychoanalyzing somebody from a distance based on their work but there is no Frank Miller story where Superman does not come off as a dick
3: hmm. Hmm.
0: that's the thing it's always so weird I, I, I liked him I like Dark Knight Returns portrayal a bit because he comes across as reasonable and, and Batman doesn't mm-hmm. but that was the one time everything that he's done after that the sequels to Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. everything he's done with Batman since then sort of paints a picture that he, when you read the original Dark Knight Returns, you can feel the satiric layer on there, that he's not taking the sort of Mickey Spillane Batman terribly seriously. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like he didn't get his own joke later on, where he forgot that this was satirical when you read his later stuff, because he seems so deadly fucking serious. I mean, the end of Dark Knight Strikes Again is almost like a chick tract, where it <laughs> ends with <laughs> Superman literally throwing himself to his knees and telling Batman he's right about everything.
2: You know, I'm, I have this theory about pop culture and creators and fans, and and it's that creators should not listen to fans. Hmm. I think what happened to Frank Miller is what happened to Gene Roddenberry. I think it's what happens to a lot of writers who get, because comics fans are not, they're almost like fans of of certain genres of rock and roll or or fans of you know it's not it's not i like this thing a lot i'm a very enthusiastic consumer of this art it's this gives my life meaning Mm. if you fuck it up i have nothing to live for (laughs) (laughs) please don't fuck it up you know and and for some reason, like Frank Miller has a lot of those fans. Oh. All right, can, and, can and... I
1: can I play devil's advocate with your mm. with your? So let's let's think about 1982. Well, you know the same year that they released Conan the Barbarian, which we're just talking about um, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, uh-huh. the death of Spock. Um, now they definitely left themselves an out for how they would, in a very comic book style way, resurrect the character so they could have more adventures. But there was a huge fan powered letter writing campaign to Paramount saying um, and they were trying to appeal to the bottom line it was like Paramount don't forget that we love Spock think about how many millions of people are going to pay for those tickets if you don't bring Spock back then we you know then we don't want you we don't want any Star Trek Um, that was I mean would would Star Trek have been better off if they just decided well we won't listen to the fans we killed Spock Leonard Nimoy is not coming back let's just go forward
2: I think it could have been done. Shatner was for it, certainly. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
1: I'm deadly serious, he yeah, was. No, I, I, and, I and totally he agree. was
2: making the claim of course we all know why, but uh, really, he was the case was there to be made. The original draft wasn't going to be there. Right. Um, Meyer was on board with it. They could have done it. In fact, I know they could have done it because DC Comics did do it. Hmm. Mike Barr oh, wow. wrote a bunch of well they had to. There was a two-year period where they were still publishing Star Trek tie-in comics, and there was no Spock to put in them. So they they put out a bunch of really good Spock-less Star Trek stories. Mm. You had Savick to be the house Vulcan, sure. and be you know queen of exposition. Um, you could still <laughs> you could you could do lots of stories about how do we do this without Spock? You there, there's ways to do it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: series have lost where the f- were the fans right or wrong in that instance to put that pressure on and was the caving in to the f- to that I think right the, or wrong i think for the, the caving
2: stories? in i think leaving the exit weakens wrath of khan as a movie as a piece you know you could always have done that as a prologue to star trek three sure but you know you put that you put that there, you leave that opening, and then everybody at the end of Wrath of Khan breathes a little sigh of relief and say, oh, thank God, he's coming back in the next one. Right. You know, I think right. it sucks all the juice out of the ending. So, yeah, I think the fans were wrong. Mm. I think any time a creator is led by the fans, the creator is mm. in the wrong. I, I think that you don't want to, you don't want to be led by the fans. You want to lead them.
1: right?
0: Well, this is why a lot of fan fiction is awful, because it comes from a place of wish fulfillment rather than a place of wanting to tell a great story, that fans have a lot of outcomes that they want, but they don't really want those outcomes. Or if they want them, they really want them in a way that they don't expect, or a way that surprises them. And when you get, oh, the two characters you want to hook up, seriously hook up or the two character, the character you want to see get revenge on another one gets that revenge. Oh, you're left with this. Well, well now what?
2: Yeah. The, the, the The way to do it you can give fans what they want but you better be prepared for the consequences usually the consequences that your story is
0: over yeah yeah. they actually make a joke about that in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie where they oh
1: like a Sam and Diane yeah the yeah. Sam and Diane
0: thing is, <laughs> and they outright say you know oh yeah by the time the, these two characters actually get together it killed the ratings <laughs> and then they decide to not have, have uh, Star-Lord and Gamora get together and I thought that was a great way of doing it they're just looking at the audience go, yeah that's why we're not going to do this <laughs> We, just, we want the tension, but we don't actually want to resolve it. Um, because I got that. I actually rewatched uh, Cheers a few years ago, and I love Sam and Diane as sort of you know pushing against each other with the sexual tension. But the minute I, they get together, I want them to break up because they're intolerable together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it really does. Mm. It's One of the people I think is really good at, at evading this kind of stuff is George R.R. R. Martin, mm. that uh, he has a line early on in the very first uh book, Game of Thrones, where he says, uh one character who's sort of uh Sansa, you know, she goes to like the joust and she's just so won over by all the, the pageantry and the chivalry and all these knights and their bright plumes and everything like that and the the acts of sort of performance art, you know, uh like decency and kindness and stuff that they're all putting on a show. And uh the sneaky guy, um Littlefinger, who's kind of the, the court, uh, he's not the spy master at this point, but he's definitely a guy who's involved in a lot of court intrigue, tells her, you may learn to your dismay one day that life is not a song. And mm. Martin is kind of telling the reader that at that point, mm. because Martin is the sort of character that if there's a character who wants revenge against somebody, like this is the person who ruined my life and all I want to do is kill them, that person will die in a random accident where that other person wasn't there for. And what will happen is that person has to go, well, shit, I've built my life around this. Now what the fuck am I going to do and make it about that crisis or a character who, like the character uh, Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer, that he's like the most dangerous swordsman in the world. What does he happen to him in the third book? He gets his right hand chopped off and now realizes that all these people who used to be afraid of him because he could slice them up with his sword in a heartbeat now realize that he's not left handed and now they can say shit to his face that they've been thinking this whole time. And that character has to sort of redefine himself. And he's a guy who's never had to be smart before, but he has to learn to be smart. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that I find fascinating. Mm. What if you do where you just upend the table on a character, that his whole purpose is thrown out, and the whole thing is about, well, what do I do now? And then you realize with Martin a lot of the time, the the new story is better. The character right. is richer now. Right. And the thing I worry a little bit about is the last season of Game of Thrones Hat, now that it's moving out of the realm of what has been set ahead by these books, is getting into the realm of we're giving people the outcomes. Wish fulfillment, f- yeah. Yeah, wish fulfillment. Yeah. We're giving them the outcomes that they want. And yeah, these fuck yeah moments, they're all coming in quick succession. And I, I don't want that to ruin it. I want there to be surprises. I want there to be complications to the thing that they want. And I, I think that if you don't do that, it kills everything. Well,
2: but see, that's I guess that's what I'm getting at is... Absolutely, the audience deserves to have patience pay off. Yeah. Absolutely, they do. You know, and and especially in long-running shows with the romantic tension, after a while, you're just staring at it. Like, you, you guys are just idiots. That's basically what's going on. You're just stupid. He loves you. You love him. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you even dating the other guy? You're a moron. There's right. a reason you're unhappy it's because you're self destructing
0: mm-hmm. you know
2: that's that's the problem the so you have to pay it off somehow
0: and you have a time limit
1: a lot of the time, yeah. I, this have, this just exposes my the one of my things that I think I've told you often is that I prefer storytelling that is has a beginning middle end to story storytelling that has sort of an indefinite period um, just because I find it becomes more satisfying because you can you can create arcs for characters you can have a character be someone who you like who you then hate who you like again and then you hate again afterwards and their journey at the end of it will say something about. Um well actually will actually say something about the character and how they end up fitting. If you have to do do this, we end on a stasis at the end of each episode. You sure the characters can change a little bit. Sure a character can die or leave or whatever, but you still have to end in something that if it it doesn't get picked up the next se- if it does get picked up the next season, you can pick right up and go along, you know. I um that's always what is been been intimidating to me about the comic books is like is like i w I, I'd like I liked a self-contained sort of narrative where i can see that there's a change that ends up happening and it and it, i don't to 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 fully grasp it i don't want to have to have 50 years of of backstory i don't want to ha- i don't want to have to have watched 30 years of young and the restless you know like
0: yeah i i get that
1: i i think for me
0: um an ending makes a lot more interesting fiction possible because it, you can there's two different kinds of characters i think there's james bond characters or batman characters And then you have uh, Walter White characters where um, Batman and and James Bond are people that largely don't get massive changes that you can get a story occasionally gives you a new look into who they are and why they do what they do. But you want a story that begins and ends in a similar place because it's about the continuing adventures of this guy that this is the newest James Bond mission, this is the newest criminal that Batman's hunting down. But Walter White is different because on Breaking Bad, he's one thing at the beginning of the series and another thing at the end, and it's about that transformation, that there's really only one Walter White story, and it ends at the end of that series. And because it's a story about a, a regular high school science teacher becoming like a murderous drug dealer, then you need that ending, and I think... Um, You could look at the difference between that and what I've heard. I haven't seen Dexter, but I've heard people complain about Dexter Mm. is that both of these are shows about guys with double lives, that they're doing something horrible or violent in their other life and they're hiding behind this other kind of veneer. And there's always that one person who's kind of onto them and kind of chasing them. And there has to come a point in a finite show where that secret gets exposed, because that's the point where this character faces consequences for all the things that they've done. This is what I love about crime fiction, is that it gives you the ability to have a truly amoral lead, because you know that that lead will eventually have to pay for this in some way. Mm -hmm. So you can follow them doing terrible things, because you know they're not going to get away with it, really. And... What happened, I guess, at the end of Dexter is that he does. He just runs off somewhere. His secret's never exposed. And I'm like, well, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> you can't prime it that long and then not do it where, yeah. you know, the, big, the first half of the last season of Breaking Bad, the shit comes out. yeah, And it's all about, well, what do we do now? We're barreling towards the conclusion. We've been waiting for this stuff. We've been hinting at this stuff forever. But you have to, you have to, the, there, you pull the pin on the grenade, it's going to have to explode.
1: Yeah, I mean if you if you kind of take the sort of Walter White, like take a good character, make him bad, or vice versa, um, and graph that onto longer form continual storytelling. Like think about something like the what is apparently the ham fisted making Captain America an evil agent of Sydra Where it's like you've established in what 60 years of or more of storytelling that he's this one actual thing so if you try to attempt to radically shift the character around by you know by plot convenience of making him uh making him actually an agent of hydra it's not it's not only going to betray the character that you've that you've been writing for 60 years or whatever it's also just going to not follow the logic of what you've been doing with the character that whole time
0: well uh, i've actually uh, read the story oh have you um well the thing is it's a is of course it's red skull with the cosmic cube which is the answer to all the stories in the captain <laughs> america thing he that just are changed
1: he just changed his past right yeah he, what happened. he basically yeah.
0: gave him a bunch of false memories and yeah. what'll happen at the end of this Yada, story, yada, yada,
1: time travel, and then well, it's done.
0: it's going to end the way we always know it is, is, is that Captain America is going to break this brainwashing. He's going to come back stronger than ever and better and everything you want him to be, and he's going to have a triumphant moment, and he's going to punch the shit out of the Red Skull. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what he does. And at the end of this run, uh, by this writer, uh, he's going to be exactly where he was left before. That there's a, There is kind of a finite beginning, middle, and end to superhero comics, and it's usually- based on a creative team. And at the end of that creative team, you go back to A again. And then that person can do the next big radical change. Like, there was a while where uh, Peter Parker was technically dead, that... um, Dr. Octopus um, was dying from all the super strong punches to the head he'd been getting
1: over how <laughs> many decades, because he's not super strong. D- Doc Ock, NFL, former NFL athlete. that he's, yeah. a, he's
0: a pudgy scientist who's been punched in the head repeatedly by a guy who can lift a car. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that takes its tear on him, and he's slowly dying, and he decides the way to survive is to use a brain swap machine and take his consciousness and steal... Uh, Peter Parker's body and throw Peter Parker into the dying body and he does and Peter Parker dies in the Doc Ock body and now Peter Parker has Doc Ock's consciousness running him except he has all of Peter Parker's memories and loss and all these experiences and the flooding of that gives Doc Ock this thing like I need to be a good person he just hasn't had the right experience suddenly now he has memories of Uncle Ben being his uncle and he's just like I have to do right by this I have to do right by this.
2: The great part about this story, and I thought it was a terrific story. Hmm. I adored this story. And and again, I'm was thoroughly annoyed by comic fans going you've ruined spider-man my life is over what's wrong with you don't you know how much this character means to me and
1: you know you know i i, I, I suspect you're straw a little bit but i also suspect that there are really. people that there are no. people who actually say that the, i guarantee there are, are.
0: Yeah. i was
2: a moderator at the cbr message board for 10 years An- if anything i am <laughs> understating <laughs> yeah. the case but but the point being Anybody who has been reading superhero comics for more than 20 minutes (laughs) knows that there is a reset button. Yeah. My very first Captain America comic ever, ever in 1968, and it was my first exposure to Captain America... It was the cover just called it, you know, great anniversary album issue. And I think that's why I bought it. I thought it was a more bang for the buck or something. What it was was an entire issue of flashbacks of Tony Stark mourning his friend Steve Rogers when Rogers body is fished out of the East River. Hmm. Captain America was dead. (laughs) Okay, this is my first captain america comic that's sad. ruined forever yeah why did, you, ruined it. why did you ever go
1: back why did you ever go back after that i like it was I didn't, over
2: that's the joke oh. i didn't not for six years oh wow uh because i did not know because i was eight <laughs> that, <laughs> that in the previous issue jim steranko had killed steve rogers um the the Writer, an artist had killed Steve Rogers because he was trying to do a story where the world didn't know who Captain America was anymore, so mm. he had Steve fake his own death um, and then and then being Staranko, he was late. So they got Jack Kirby to bang out this flashback fill-in issue. That
1: oh, it basically was the, it was the clip show. It was it was the, the, it was clip, the show. clip show nice. comic. Nice.
2: Um, that oh, took man. place between the <laughs> ten minutes, <of> the, <laughs> the the cliffhanger, the last one, and then when Stranko finished the story a month later. But I didn't know. I only saw the clip show. I thought, oh fuck.
1: <laughs> like, that it's, it's over. That would literally be like someone who'd never seen Star Trek: The Next Generation before sees season two's Shades of Gray and is just like, "I don't understand what this show is. This is stupid and just quitting. <laughs> that's, just being that's, like, ex- it's terrible." Yeah, and that's exactly
2: to... what happened. But for for that six years, I really thought that Captain America had died. That every issue, that every Cap story I saw, <laughs> was was taking had taken place earlier.
0: Oh. That it was
2: all leading up to, you know, hmm. Cap's body in the East River. It wasn't literally, it was not until I think I was in college that I saw a reprint of that run and realized that I was just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that, but a, also yeah. by the time I was in college, I, had un- I understood the cycle Right. Of comics and the right. cycle of series characters. And it's like, you know, on Star Trek, we're going to we're going to kill Jim Kirk. Oops. Ha. Psych. No, we didn't. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Like, you know, like that. That's how comics work. That's how series characters work mm. um, for a long time. The the genius of shows like Mike has been talking about, like Breaking Bad, is when creators discovered that they could do a series where change happened. Right. <laughs> where, you know, you don't have to hit the reset button like Law and Order shows yeah. do yeah you can. although i think there's a really good case to be made for that kind of series of course I think that's of,
1: totally doable of course and uh, and here's the thing I, th- I was just i've been watching american crime which is a crime drama an abc crime drama it's been a long time since i've watched anything that's been produced by the television network abc um but it's a basically a crime drama about a a B and E turned murder in Modesto, California, and it's about the nexus of the families of the people who are involved in the crime itself. And you you realize that you could this this whole arc, which I think takes place now over two different seasons, um, could easily be one episode of Law and Order, depending mm-hmm. on how they it could this the exact same story of you know Lenny of Lenny Briscoe. Um, Chris Knoth and, Le- and uh, Lenny Briscoe, like going and finding out all the players, and then talking to people, and then breaking people under interrogation. It could play out in forty eight minutes. It absolutely could.
0: You could turn all of Breaking Bad into an episode of right. Law and yeah. Order, where you just it, you don't know what the deal is with this science teacher played by Brian Cranston, and at the end he gets busted, <laughs> <laughs> and Sam Waterston puts him in prison.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it, so it, and they both could do it. They could both be done well too. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? This is the story. The story could take place over 20 hours or it could take place over one hour and depending on on depending on how capably uh d- designed the scenario is and the characters are it can be done well um maybe it's just a sheer bit of indulgence that we have where we would actually much rather have a 48 minute episode of law and order take uh, two years instead of just getting it, it over it with it could
2: be but i here's my thing i think it hums with the execution yeah. i think it depends on who's doing it you know um the a lot of times when people make this argument the the case that they make they bring up the best of the one that they like and then they say the worst of the one that they don't like right. like if i if i'm going to talk about
1: well, certainly like, law and order is not among the worst kind of episodic no, television no that's order. the opposite law and order is yeah. the,
2: the one that i always use as the example of yeah. this is good reset button television yeah. this yeah. is this is how you do the open ended series um and on the other hand, you know, Breaking Bad is the the gold standard of how you do the 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 arc series. Um, I think there are shows that have actually threaded the needle that, that do hmm. both um where you didn't have to pay it off, but they did kind of make changes and pay it off. Uh, Eureka on the sci fi network. Oh yeah. I
1: don't know if you watched that. Not the whole not the whole series. Well that
2: was kind of a situational show yeah. but it had it had growth and change. And when they had to hit the reset button to make it fresh they did this great story where they had to go back to the 1940s and they came back and the whole town was different hmm. and and that was the new status quo it wasn't something that, they had to that's, change back into
1: its genre though because it's sort of about a weird town where anything because science has gone crazy and anything can happen but i thought it was yeah. a very
2: clever way yeah. to kind of shake it up yeah right. you know because because the the truth of the matter is that attrition is built into series television yeah especially american series television where you do 22 episode seasons instead of right. like bbc six episode seasons you know so you're doing that's got
1: to be thinking about it that's got to be so grueling it's got to be absolutely grueling to do that in a year yeah it's got to be insane to, to think about something like mash yeah which is a which is a great great series like a lot, an amazing series um can you imagine just the fatigue that you would have of doing that for 10 years? It, it's probably why Hawkeye got so depressing after <laughs> times.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you can really tell in MASH when the attrition sets in, when they started reading their own press, when the actors started getting bored and demanding different things, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. they started just injecting weird shit into it to shake it up, when actors left and got replaced. Yeah. Um. These are all... You know, the the interesting thing about MASH is that the quality level stayed high enough that pretty much anybody who is a fan of the show will tell you that it jumped the shark, but they never will agree on when. Yeah,
0: and They yeah. never will agree on when it happens. Because I like a lot of the replies. I actually like Colonel Potter better. I like Colonel Potter better. I like B.J. Honeycutt better. Yeah, I mm-hmm. like B.J. Honeycutt. Mm-hmm. I actually, I, as much as I like Char- um, Frank Burns, mm-hmm. I really, really like Charles Winchester. Mm-hmm. That Major Winchester is a really cool... He's a much more nuanced character. Yeah. And he's not just, you know, hey, let's have another Burns with the, the serial number scratched off. He's a very different character. Mm-hmm. And I... I like the replay. Actually, Law and Order is another example. They replaced the entire cast. Yeah, they,
1: they certainly did.
0: And the cast that I like uh, really is any episode that has um, Sam Waterston and what is the name of the actor I'm thinking of. Jerry Orbach. Oh, God. Yeah. The two great. of them are, That's. those are like, I kind of have this hierarchy of, oh, who's his partner? I like Detective Green a little better, though I do like Brian Bratt. Yeah, Brett Benjamin uh, Bratt. Bratt. Benjamin Bratt. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I do like that. I kind of like, I have sort of a taste for who's the who's the DA. <laughs> I kind of like, And I'm like so occasionally I get my perfect episode that has my perfect cast.
1: Wait, isn't at a certain point, is the guy who replaces uh, uh, Water- Sam Waterston is the guy who plays Br- Bruce Wayne, or Thomas Wayne, do you know it, what I'm talking about? Is I think he? it's I think it's that guy. Yeah, the guy Where? who plays Thomas Wayne in the uh, in the Chris Nolan movies. Oh, he becomes the the replacement DA. Yeah, and of I, course Jack uh, Sam Watterson always has like just some comely lass as his assistant DA mm-hmm. who's, and she's out like every three seasons there's another one I know
0: yes. I don't know I mean I know Sam Waterston probably wanted to have more free time so he wanted a smaller role in the show but the show just isn't the same without the Sam Waterston speech at the end Yeah, with the fucking indignance yeah he yeah. just gets so, he just gets
1: so oh, viscerally so, upset that's about nothing injustice you
2: guys want to see peak Sam Waterston indignance you've got to watch Aaron Sorkin's the newsroom oh, oh he's yeah, great yeah. <laughs> he swears he's the
0: best part of that show. Yeah. He's the best part. He's got a potty mouth and a bow tie. He's great. <laughs> He's awesome. I, I love pissed off Sam Waterston. I like when he has contempt in his voice. Any scene where to to show how horrible some shooter is, he like pours a whole box of bullets on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. Just Because you gotta get the mic drop yeah. kind of moment where the music goes doom. <laughs> See... <laughs>
2: Sam Waterston is the least likely actor you'd pick out of a lineup to have a fuck yeah moment, but goddamn if he doesn't have him in like double digits. Like I swear every to God,
0: episode he nails it. It's kind of, it's being the being the prosecutor on Law and Order is kind of like being a Star Trek captain. <laughs> you, you have to be a badass without a lot of fight scenes, and you got to be able
1: to nail the speech. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, you, you know, I, it's Sam Waterston's New York City has to be, uh, the, the, uh, the the amount of clearance that they get on all of their homicides has got to be amazing under Sam Waterston. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the prosecution, he he'd be rarely loses. He rarely loses.
0: You occasionally get the one where they lose, but there's a line at the end and a, a scared look across the face of the perp who just got away with it, that it's only a matter of time. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Now Sam Waterston uh, uh, what's it, what's the, what's the character's name Jack uh oh god oh, oh we're going to lose it here anyways this DA Sam Waterston teams up with Batman that's that's, that's got to be that's that's got to be I think uh I think uh Brandon Bird has a uh has a a, a picture that has batman and jack watterson yeah
0: have you you seen that there's a i haven't but now i want this movie so bad that it just hurts you know that there's a that shot at the end of every opening credit scene of law and order where the cops and the prosecutors walk forward like pals there's one of those where they've replaced one of them with batman (laughs) (laughs) i think the painting is just called crime fighters
2: i have been waiting for somebody in comics to do law and order gotham how did that not happen yeah Gotham yeah. Central was so close. It was yeah.
1: super. It was really good. Yeah, it was amazing. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, c- h- how would you? How could you do the? Uh, 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 you know, Greg Rucka and um, the guy that we love, Brew Baker. did such a great job, basically doing a police procedural in in the sort of the Gotham City universe. Um, but that was just that was the enforcement part. Uh, now we need the second half. Is those who prosec- the, the prosecuting yeah. attorneys. To be an attorney, a prosecuting attorney in Gotham, you'd have to be, like, untouchable... In yeah. the same, like, like a Gordon's acolytes, you'd have to be you seriously to be, fucking untouchable. You have to be careful. Well, the last guy who had
0: that job got half his face burned that's off. that's True. Yes. Not only
2: half his face burned off, and I'm sure everybody he ever set up immediately got a retrial yeah. and got everything thrown out. And it's just like, come on, he's clearly a crazy person. Yeah, that's that's, that's <laughs> My my client was hounded into prison by the guy with half a face <laughs> that just held up the city for two million dollars ransom, or he'd poison the reservoir. Really. <laughs>
0: Come on! <laughs> like Everyone who tries that to... guy held
2: up a liquor store. Right. Yeah. Be right. serious.
0: <laughs> How many criminals used to be somebody that would have been a Batman ally at some point? Harley Quinn was a uh, was a psychiatrist at Arkham. You have Harvey Dent. You have. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, don't try to fucking
1: Victor Freeze. Fuck
0: Victor Freeze. Yep. I think Commissioner Gordon is the only friend he's ever had who's managed to never be evil at some point. Hmm.
2: Except on the television show Gotham.
0: Oh God, is it that bad? It's getting there. <laughs> oh. He's,
2: it's the, the dun, dun, dun,
0: dun.
2: Well, you know, the funny thing is, Gotham has these. I I occasionally look at it because I can't help myself because I'm a life lifelong Bat guy. I have to know. It's sad, really. Pity me, <laughs> but but uh, they have moments where they do an episode that. Here is the way to look at Gotham. This is my feeling. You have to look at Gotham as the prequel series to the Adam West Batman.
3: <laughs> if you
2: look at it that way, suddenly it's so much more fun. <laughs> especially when they have been doing this season. This season and last season, but especially this season, they are doing... Edward Nigma has become the Riddler.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He's calling himself the Riddler. And the, the guy whoever it was i didn't see the name but whoever wrote the two riddler scripts where he's trying out his new modus operandi i'm going to have a duel of wits with the gotham police department james gordon is going to be my puppet you know it's just it's perfect because you you can see this guy aging into frank Gorsham. <laughs> and, 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 and 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 the riddles themselves are so much i I can't help it. That stuff lets, hits me where I live. The puzzle, the clues, the the deduction, the race against time—all mm. of that stuff—that's like in my my short list of greatest hits. It's like, okay, they own me when they do that. And
1: so, it, but right. So here's a question: Writing the riddle, being the writer who has to write the riddle—is it's a little bit like being the Simpsons writer who has to write the uh, for calling the Moe's bar gag? You know, where it's like, they're fun, but after a while, it just probably just gets so tiresome to have to keep doing them, and you're just like, I think
0: that was a thing I heard about the people who wrote for the Rockford Files having to come up with a gag on his voicemail every time. It's super hard. You can
2: make a whip for your own back, for sure. I I did it myself. I did it for myself. I had this moment where... uh, Julie and I were watching these proto-Riddler episodes, and I was really into it, and Julie loves that stuff. My wife, I'm, I'm all about crime and action and pulp stuff and blood and guts mm-hmm. and blood and car chases and shit that blows up. <laughs> Julie is like the Ellery Queen... Clues and and reason, mm-hmm. and she's much more Sherlock Holmes, Nero Wolf. That's her wheelhouse. And we were watching this Riddler thing, and watching Gordon killing himself, trying to to outthink the Riddler. And it's really hard because Gotham's James Gordon is mostly a, a fisticuffs fella. He's not really much in the brains department. Which again, perfect prequel to the Adam West. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I just
0: wish some guy in a
1: costume could do all this work for me. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: And uh, and I
1: said he, he to doesn't Julie, want to leave his desk if he can help it. You know,
2: I I said to Julie, you know, the real opponent for the Riddler is not Batman; it's Sherlock Holmes.
1: Yeah, oh. Sherlock
2: Holmes versus the Riddler would be. And then I realized what I said, and I said, "Fucking a, I'm doing it. I'm doing that story." <laughs> and and I wrote to Ron, and he said. I pitched it to him, and he said, yeah, do it. And I did it. It's going to be in volume 10. No shit. Uh, Awesome. I I had to call it The Adventure of the Conundrum King. Right, of course. And it's it's not really the Riddler, but that was what was in my head. It's like Sherlock Holmes versus the Riddler. And I got to tell you, making up the riddles was tremendous fun, but here's where I fucked myself up. I realized that Sherlock Holmes would think riddles are bullshit. Right. Sherlock Holmes caught criminals with forensics and science and 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 evidence. And he doesn't fucking solve riddles. That doesn't happen. Right. But I still had to... I really wanted to have the riddles and the answers and to have the readers puzzled. So I had to construct this sort of parallel thing where there's a real mystery for Sherlock to unravel and find out who is the conundrum king and i also got to do the riddles and it was it fucking broke me (laughs) (laughs) so i i would never do that every week on television ever right right. ever but just
1: once (laughs) It, it was so much fun
2: it was so much fun
1: nice
0: Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversustheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at radio
4: did you put saline in the vials? I researched it carefully. I knew that saline was not harmful to the body. Didn't want anyone to get hurt. I made sure all the vials were sterile. Everything was done so that no one would get sick from the injections themselves. But you admit you broke the law. And I'm more than willing to take the punishment for that. But I am not a killer. I am a counterfeiter. Weren't you concerned that some people might catch the flu and get sick because they weren't immunized? Honestly, I didn't think that anyone would catch the flu. I mean, that's just the luck of the draw, isn't it? That could happen to anyone, whether you got a flu shot or not. And um, can't the vaccine itself make you sick? Besides, who dies from the flu? You're sick for a few days, eat a lot of chicken soup, and that's it. Thank you, Mr. Peters.
5: These 16 people we've been talking about, they died.
4: They died of the flu. From the testimony I've heard, there seems to be a difference of opinion about that, actually. But I'm sorry they did. However it happened,
5: I'm very sorry. You just testified you didn't think there was much risk connected to your ersatz vaccine. I didn't think so, nothing substantial at least. You didn't think that what you did posed any substantial risk? Is that your testimony? Yes. Mr. Peters, did you ever see an old movie called The Third Man? Your Honor, Mr. McCoy. The defendant says he couldn't foresee any substantial risk to his actions, I'd like to explore that state of mind a little further. Witness may answer.
4: The third man with Orson Welles. It's been a long time.
5: Orson Welles plays a black marketeer who steals penicillin and then dilutes and sells it with tragic consequences. Death, amputation, children die. Objection. It's a parallel situation, Your Honor. I think the analogy is apt. Overruled. There's a famous scene on a Ferris wheel.
4: I remember that scene.
5: Orson Welles goes for a ride on a Ferris wheel with his friend, and it stops when they get to the top. And his friend, who's played by Joseph Cotton, asks why. Why did you do this? Orson Welles says, for the money. Joseph Cotton is horrified. Have you no conscience? How do you live with yourself? Orson Welles points to the people on the ground far below. And the people on the ground are very small, walking around in the square. And Welles says, would you really feel anything? if one of those dots down there suddenly stopped moving? What was your expectation when you labeled your saline solution as flu vaccine and then sold it in bulk to people like Sklar? That they'd sell it to someone else and it would eventually be used as vaccine?
4: Sure, eventually.
5: And you couldn't foresee the risk to those patients? They were just dots to you, weren't they? Far away, insignificant. Objection! And if they suddenly stopped moving, who'd care? Not you! Your Honor! All right, Mr.
4: McCoy, you've made your point.
5: further, Your Honor.